The History Channel original podcast. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that the following program may contain voices of people who have died. History this week, February 15th, 1965. I'm Sally Helm. The students decide to post sentries around the hall to guard the entrances while they sleep. They're staying tonight at a church in the small town of Walgett, Australia. Three days ago, they left the University of Sydney to travel to more rural places, trying to understand the state of Aboriginal rights in their country and to stand up for equality. They're calling it the Freedom Ride. Today, they spent the day in Walgett protesting segregation. Some important spaces in town are for whites only. They don't allow Indigenous Australians to enter. The students picketed, holding signs that said things like, Walgett, Australia's disgrace. It didn't make them a lot of friends, hence the sentries. And as they're settling down to sleep, they're interrupted by the minister and the church wardens. A student documentarian, Darce Cassidy, later recounts the whole story. The minister and the wardens say, you can't stay here tonight. They say this has nothing to do with the protest. It's because boys and girls are sleeping in the same room and they're being too loud. Also, the church people found some cans of beer. And yet, some of the students wonder if they're being punished for picketing. But they have no choice. They've got to go. They wake up the bus driver, he's sleeping in a motel, and head out onto the road. It's late at night, and as they leave town, they notice a line of cars behind them. Some students think this might be local townspeople out to get them. Others say, no, no, it's 10 o'clock. It's probably just people coming back from the bar. But then, a truck pulls up alongside the bus and crashes into its side. Once, twice, then three times. The bus careens off the road and comes to a halt. No one's hurt, but it's chaos. There are suitcases tumbled around and food fallen on the floor. When the students look up, they see headlights pointing at them from multiple directions. A mob of townspeople, they think, who have come out for payback. A few of them scramble to find soda bottles that they can break against the back of a seat so they'll have a piece of glass to use as a weapon. And they ready themselves to face whoever's outside in the night. Today, The Australian Freedom Rides. How did the U.S. civil rights movement spark a wave of student activism on the other side of the world? And how did this dramatic confrontation on the road help catapult this student protest to national importance, changing laws and lives in Australia? Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Rewind a year from that scene in Walgett. 
It's May 1964. The University of Sydney is celebrating its founding on a holiday called Commemoration Day. Which was this annual, what people called a muck-up day. That is when students kind of did pranks and silly things. Anne Kurthoys was a student then herself. But on this occasion, they also did very political things. Kurthoys would eventually join the Freedom Ride. And years later, she'd become a history professor at the Australian National University and write a book about the Freedom Rides and about this protest in May 1964. On that day, the students are outraged about something happening thousands of miles away. U.S. President Lyndon B. Johnson is trying to pass his civil rights bill, but segregationist senators are holding it up with a filibuster. The Australian students have seen horrifying images coming out of the U.S. civil rights movement. The, you know, putting of dogs onto children, that image of dogs attacking children at a civil rights demonstration, when really they weren't protesting for anything particularly surprising or dramatic. They were protesting for basic equal rights. I mean, here in Australia, as, as it did in other parts of the world, it really did affect people. And so when the suggestion was made to have a demonstration, a lot of students went and joined in. They gather outside the U.S. consulate in downtown Sydney. It was very crowded. I mean, it was 2,000 students, you know, people shouting and so forth. Obviously, the students were blocking traffic and blocking progress of anything going on in that street. It's chaotic. There are arrests. It's a little bit scary. I was a little bit hanging back, so that's why I didn't get arrested. But a lot of people I knew did. These were mostly young, white Australians. Anne herself was only 19. Incredibly young, when I think back on it. And there were images all over Australian media the next day of students, especially young women, being manhandled by police. And across Sydney, people are talking about the protest. We realised that something quite dramatic had happened. A lot of people support the student activism. But in the days after May 6th, even some of those supporters begin to raise a criticism. Yeah, it's great that you're opposed to racism, but what about what's happening here? An African-American man in the U.S. even writes to the students, saying... You know, thank you for supporting us, but what about problems in your own backyard? What about your own situation? So the knowledge that there was that critique from the U.S., plus the critique at home, did lead students who'd been involved in this demonstration to think about what should we do. The students take this criticism to heart. Because African Americans are suffering in the U.S., undoubtedly. But in Australia, Aboriginal people are suffering from their own history of racism and disenfranchisement. They have been ever since the British began colonizing Australia in 1788. Britain declared Australia was theirs, with no recognition of the Indigenous people who lived there. And of course, there were a lot of Aboriginal people there. So the way that settlement unfolded was often very violent, it also involved a lot of exploitation of Aboriginal people as workers on pastoral stations, you know, as stock workers or sheep stations and so on. White settlers eventually pushed many Aboriginal people onto reserves. And by 1964, a long history of exploitation has led to a world where Aboriginal people are often living in substandard housing, where they're not paid fairly for their work, where they aren't considered citizens. And in many places, especially rural places, there's also de facto segregation between white people and Aboriginal people. 
There'd been a long tradition of keeping Aboriginal people out of picture theatres or in the, a separate section of a picture theatre, out of hotels or a separate section of a hotel, out of towns, on the margins of towns. And so I think what the student part of the movement did was pick up on this question of discrimination and exclusion. There was already an Aboriginal rights movement in Australia, calling for a lot of what the students will pick up on. Things like better wages, better working and housing conditions, and educational opportunities. The students decide they want to add their efforts to that movement. And they look for leadership to a man named Charles Perkins. At that point, he was one of a small handful of Aboriginal students attending a higher education institution in Australia. He's quite reflective. He's got a hard exterior, but... When I got to know him and speak to him, he really opened up. Peter Reed is a professor of Aboriginal history at the Australian National University. Years after the Freedom Rides, he wrote Charles Perkins's biography. He told us Perkins had been a star soccer player, which was one reason he was able to break through the barriers that Aboriginal kids faced. At the age of 27, he goes to the University of Sydney to get his degree. And his focus soon turns to politics. He meets with some of the student leaders who had organized that May 6th protest, and they all decide to form a group together. Student Action for Aborigines. Anne Kerthoys was in that group too. She knew Perkins. I mean, he's just one of the students, you know, just like anybody else and chat, chat, chat. But he had more of a history behind him than the rest of us did. And he had a real determination to find a way to bring about change in Aboriginal lives, really. And I think... The rest of us supported that project, but of course we weren't Aboriginal, so we came at it from a different background. And I think Charles helped us understand a lot. It's Perkins who comes up with the idea of a freedom ride. A professor had talked to him about freedom rides in the US when black and white demonstrators rode buses together through the American South to protest segregated transportation. Transportation in Australia wasn't segregated in the same way, but Perkins liked the idea of a freedom ride, one that would take student demonstrators out of Sydney and into the rest of the country. He felt that having white students stand up with him would help get public attention on the cause of Aboriginal rights. Early on, the plan was just to visit certain towns and demonstrate against particularly egregious forms of discrimination. But over time, there's a suggestion that one shouldn't assume one knew the situation totally and that they had to have an element of survey and an element of investigation. These are mostly white urban kids who've been oblivious to some of the problems in their country. And so fact-finding becomes a big goal of the Freedom Ride. They plan an itinerary and get ready to go. Peter Reed told us that before they left, they got a piece of tactical advice from a civil rights activist from the U.S. If you're going to do anything, get a camera on you. Media attention could turn this student action into an important national moment. But at the beginning, the media wasn't all that interested. One student was working for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, so he took his tape recorder along. But that was kind of it. We didn't know if we would attract media interest, so we set off with no real media on the bus. Nevertheless, on February 12th, 1965, they gather in front of an imposing university building to get on the bus. They leave in the middle of the night. I can't remember why, actually. <laughs> it was sort of midnight, and I think it took quite some time for everyone to get together and, you know, turn up and be on the bus. And 
classic college moment. Yeah, that's right. And so finally, finally, we're all there and we're farewelled partly by um, the minister who says a prayer and then by these singers. A group of African-American singers who were in Sydney came to see the bus off with a song. We shall overcome, if I remember rightly. And that was pretty incredible. You know, we were being farewelled in that way by people that we would have had incredible respect for. And then we took off. They start their 2,000-mile journey. Drove through the night for some hours and arrived sort of more or less at dawn, I think, at the first town. Most of us were sort of city kids. And I think we really had no idea what we were going to encounter. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. As they begin their freedom ride, the students are energized. In the first towns they visit, they do surveys about Aboriginal living conditions. They run around with clipboards to ask people about things like health, education, race relations. And to many students who've lived a relatively sheltered life, the poverty they see is startling. That shift from knowing something in your head to really understanding it and getting a kind of emotional reaction to it. That moment of understanding, this is in my country, a pretty well-off country, and there's this level of poverty. It was really shocking. On the third day of their trip, the students arrive in the town of Walgett. Here, they've formed relationships with Aboriginal leaders in the town, people who have been advocating for change already. They meet with some of those leaders to talk strategy. Some of the students play a pickup basketball game with a group of Aboriginal teenagers. And then they go into the heart of Walgett, where they come to a club. The Returned and Services League Club. I think the American equivalent would be a veterans club. The RSL clubs are for servicemen, but they can also be social clubs, places to eat, meet up for national holidays. You can find RSL clubs all over Australia. And so there was one in Walgett, even though it's quite a small town, and it would not allow Aboriginal people in. Even though there were Aboriginal people in town who had fought in the Second World War, and even though the club is an important place in the town's social life. The students see an opportunity. If they could show racism in the RSL, then you really show people, look, even in this kind of important national institution, you've got endemic racism. They decide they're going to stand outside the club and protest. This is middle of summer. It's so hot. That's one of my strongest memories is the heat. 
We all line up and gradually people come and see what we're doing and start to shout at us and oppose us. And as Peter Reed described it, the white townspeople were saying, there's no problem in Walgett. No one was uncomfortable here. Everyone knew their place. And you're coming up disturbing the equilibrium of what formerly was a happy town. Some people get really angry. That student who worked for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, the ABC, he recorded some of this. His name was Darce Cassidy. He later published those recordings in a documentary. During that protest in Walgett, he asked some white townspeople what they thought of the Aboriginal people in town. Uh, some good, some bad. 90% bad. What do you think of this crowd I of students? I don't think it's the Aborigines we've got to worry about. I think it's that motley-looking crowd over there. We've got to worry about if they're our future leaders from Australia. And that goes on for hours, this shouting in the street between us students and the white townsfolk who were very opposed to us because we were coming from outside and telling them, what you're doing is wrong. You're being racist and that's wrong. That was the gist of it. We probably were quite, you know, arrogant young students telling them how to live their lives and so forth. But really, we were touching a nerve about race relations in the town. Towards the end of the day, some young Aboriginal boys and girls come out to see the protest too. Peter Reed said, Charles Perkins later described a moment when he caught their eyes and some wordless communication passed between them. It was like the kids were saying, What are you doing? And Charlie looking back and saying, I'm saying in it, through his eyes, I'm not sure what I'm doing, but I'm holding up this poster and this is obviously this is important. Perkins described it as a meeting of the eyes. To him, it was this key moment. In which Aboriginal people had gone ahead, they could see, we can stand up and defy the whites and we can get away with it and we can change our own world. That was the magic moment of the freedom ride for him. It only happened about three days into it. But this subtle moment goes mostly unnoticed by the people around them. The protest stretches from noon until sunset. When night falls, the students return to the Anglican Church Hall where they had arranged to stay the night. But the minister and the wardens say, you can't be here. This was in the middle of the night or nine o'clock at night or something like that. We had nowhere to stay. And so we had to pack up the bus and go. The students are joined this time by a new member, a young reporter for a major Australian newspaper, the Sydney Morning Herald. He happened to be in Walgett that day and asked to join the trip. And as the bus pulls out of town, the students realize they're being followed by a line of cars in the night. And we didn't know if these were sympathisers or hostile. People were going to drive us off the road or attack us, or we didn't know what it was. And pretty soon, there's a truck slamming into the bus. Driven by this quite young farm or farmer's son. And he started to ram the bus to drive the bus off the road, which was actually quite dangerous because the road was quite a lot higher than the surrounding country. So the bus driver had to try and pull the bus off the road safely. And I remember there were some bottles rolling around on the floor in this sort of chaos. Finally, the bus comes to a stop on the side of the road and the students realize they're surrounded. I do remember Charles shouting, all the girls up the back of the bus, all the girls up the back of the bus. So we <laughs> went up the back of the bus. But in fact, what had happened, the guy who pushed us off the road had driven off and then the supporters in the other cars had come and said, are you OK, are you OK? 
it's a group of people from the town who were worried about the students and came out to make sure that nothing happened to them. So then we were okay, nothing else happened. The students do decide to go back to Walgate and report the incident to the police. Nothing really comes of the report, but... A cadet reporter from the Sydney Morning Herald happened to be there. So he could write a very dramatic story for the Herald, which he did. And it's really that story that was the beginning of the media attention, which from then on was huge. With many more eyes on them, the students continue their ride. Their next big confrontation comes in the town of Moray. Moray is a much bigger town and quite a wealthy town. And the thing in Moree was that it had an Olympic swing pool and alongside artesian baths. These baths were a big tourist attraction and an attraction for people in the town. Remember, it's hot. But blocking the entrance to both of these sites was a big gate because... They didn't want Aboriginal people in the pool. The students see this and they help organize a big meeting in town to talk about it. And there were people in the town who wanted things to change, non-Aboriginal people as well as Aboriginal people. The next day, the students decide to go to the pool itself. A group of Aboriginal kids join them, and they ask to be let in. Would you serve me, please? I want six adults and eight children's tokens. The pool manager says, well, that depends. If they haven't got the health regulations... How would you get on? They can bar me from going in if I had sores or anything on me. Yes, but that's not the, the reason they're barring them. Bad, the law of the council says that no Aboriginal, part Aboriginal, any person who's got Aboriginal blood is allowed in that bar. Darce Cassidy, the student recording along the way, captures this whole thing. After about an hour of argument... Because we were there and there's all this attention and we had media with us by this stage, they let the children in. And so the children came in and we all swam and there were all these photos in the papers the next day. Look, the pool's integrated, missing this great, great, great. Satisfied with their work, the students leave town. But soon after they've left, they get bad news about the pool. It had been instantly sort of resegregated the minute we left. The students deliberate. Should they turn back to Moray? Cassidy caught this on tape in his documentary. Charlie's just come back from a press conference. The whole of the national press is queued up on this one incident. And as Charlie said, if we break through here, it's a, it doesn't matter if it's only one place. It's signal. It's a, an example. So they turn back. And this time, at the pool, they meet an even more hostile crowd. There are a lot of people there who'd been drinking. So there's a very angry atmosphere that these students had been in the town, we'd got rid of them without too much trouble, that's great. Here they are, they're back again, they're really going to create trouble. The students line up with the children to take them into the pool again. But this time, they're not allowed to enter. And that leads to beginnings of violence. I mean, I don't think on the, a world scale it's all that violent. <laughs> there's no guns or anything, but people are throwing eggs and tomatoes and stuff. And there's a bit of jostling and pushing and shoving and a lot of shouting. And, you know, it's starting to get a bit worrying. It does get worrying. You can hear the tension in Darce Cassidy's tape. They're angry at the students. Run them out and they'll be Put them out of town. Get them out before night. Move real quick or go out in the stretcher. Yeah, there'll be a blue one for sure if it keeps going. All the big rockers will be around. All the big rockers will be around.
Finally, later that night, the mayor holds a meeting with Charles Perkins and a few other student leaders. And they all agree that if the students leave town, the town council will propose a formal end to this segregated pool policy at the next town meeting. So the bus and the students leave. Soon, they return to Sydney and to their normal lives. And the pool in Moray doesn't desegregate right away. It takes about six months, actually, a lot longer than had been agreed. But it eventually does come to council. There's a lot of hostile debate. and But eventually, the formal segregation is ended. It takes some time for the students to see the impact of their actions on any kind of broader scale, too. But they do. For one thing, all that media coverage opens up a new conversation for some Australians, especially those in white urban places. It alerted people in the cities to the ongoing discrimination and segregation and so on in the town. There were lots of debate in newspapers that went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. Quite serious debates. Well, what should policy be? What do we do? How do we proceed? This fed into a growing conversation and a growing movement for Aboriginal rights. And in 1967, there was a major change. Australia passed a referendum that would give the federal government much more ability to intervene in questions of Aboriginal policy. This referendum has years of activism behind it. That ultimately led to more money being directed to programs to help Aboriginal people. And importantly, it led to Aboriginal people finally being included in the national census. It was also seen in some quarters as an important symbolic gesture, and it laid the foundation for anti-discrimination legislation that would come in the 70s. Of course, there are still many issues facing Aboriginal people in Australia. They still don't have adequate representation in government. They suffer under high rates of incarceration and are more likely than other groups to die in police custody. And the progress brought by that referendum It came on the heels of decades of activism, so it certainly wasn't the result of the Freedom Rides alone. Reed and Kurthoys both said that one big result of the Freedom Rides had to do with Charles Perkins himself. Charles was someone who symbolised the kind of emergence of an Aboriginal politics that was taking on the society at large, you know, that wasn't only in its own context. And he went on to become an important bureaucrat in the, you know, federal government, leader of the Aboriginal Affairs Department and so forth. Perkins died in 2000, and Reid said his rise was key, especially that moment when young Aboriginal kids saw someone like themselves leading the way. For Aboriginal people, we can see Aboriginal people standing up, trading insults with the whites whom we've always been a bit frightened of. Uh, We've been cheeky too, but in the end, we knew they held the trumps. But now we realize that they don't. So we can be our own leaders and we can get in and start making our own changes. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. This episode was produced by Julie Magruder. The associate producer was Emma Fredericks. History This Week is also produced by McKamey Lynn, Ben Dickstein, and me, Sally Helm. Our editor and sound designer is Dan Rosato. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.